Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 1. You can just keep your finger there. We're going to hit a few things before we get there, but we will eventually get there, I do promise. Um, this is part 5 of our series, Rhythms of Grace, where we are taking a look at some of the spiritual disciplines that have been practiced, the active steps that are taken toward Jesus by his followers. And uh, This has been going on throughout church history, as we know. Uh, over the last four weeks, Lee has walked us through the disciplines of listening, of speaking, of fasting and feasting, and this week, we're going to be jumping into the practice of silence and solitude. Um, this series has been especially encouraging to me. These have been reminders of things that should just be second nature to most Christians, but have largely been ignored to make room for the busyness of life and the gratification, I know for myself, of my own selfish desires. And this week has been more of the same. Uh, God's Spirit has used this prep time this week to point out ways that I have ordered my life that have left little to no room for me to hear, as we'll hear the prophet Elijah did, the low whisper of God's voice. Now, for some of you who are a little bit more like me, a sermon on silence and solitude may as well be a sermon on quantum physics and ancient Aramaic, right? Like things that you could not care less about and are pretty much impossible to understand. Uh, for others of you, like some of the mums of small kids out there, these two words evoke deep, deep longing, right? <laughs> I can remember complaining to my wife a few years ago while our kids were still little. I had to drive somewhere, maybe Chilliwack and back by myself right? I had to do it on my own. I really don't like the long drives alone, sitting there with nothing to do, just looking at mountains and farmland, Ugh, you know. And all the while, Nikki's watery blue eyes are just looking off into some wonderful far-off place. She just said, that sounds amazing. <laughs> the solitude we'll be processing today isn't simply getting into a car to escape the hectic busyness of day-to-day -day life. This morning, we'll be working under this definition suggested by Jack Hayford that solitude is being alone with the Lord in a quiet quest for God, taking intentional, active time alone away from others to hear from him, keeping yourself silent and avoiding the noise of life to spend time with him. Now, what does thinking about silence and solitude do for you? Does it terrify you? Does it make you think about how much you need to do to get done? Does it bring you a sense of comfort and joy? Because the question that's begged when we approach a discipline like solitude or fasting, practices that maybe aren't part of our repertoire and maybe things we haven't seen modeled well in the lives of other Christians, uh, the question we're faced with is why? Why should we bother? Why should we do this? What am I going to get out of it? Is it worth the time and inconvenience? Because let's face it, some of the disciplines, all of them really, they're they're inconvenient most of the time. Who wants to skip a meal when you're hungry? Who has time to go to the wilderness to pray? Who has time to slow down when work is crazy? Work is always crazy. Why? Why should we do this at all? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verbally. This morning, we're going to look at six things about solitude that will help answer that question. So let's read our passage and we'll get rolling. And I'll actually invite those of you who are here in the clover to stand with me for the reading of God's Word on the live stream. Feel free to do so at home as well. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 38. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. We're talking about Jesus. And Simon and those who were with him 
searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray. God, you tell us in Ephesians 2 that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and it's not of our own doing. It's your gift to us, not a result of works. So as we make our way through a series that could very easily tempt us to use these practices as a means of trying to earn your favor, we ask that your spirit would remind us that Jesus has done the work. Jesus has reconciled us to you, that not only do we not need to earn our salvation, God, we can't. We can't do it. And at the same time, we would ask that you would impress upon us this importance of discipline as a means of moving closer to you, strengthening the faith you've given us, and as a gift that frees us from our self-imposed servitude to the ever-expanding kingdom of the world and of ourselves. Amen. And you guys can have a seat. So before we hit on our first point, two quick notes. First, I'm primarily going to be using the word solitude to talk about silence and solitude. For the majority of our discussion today, they just go hand in hand, and it'll save me saying two words a whole bunch of times. Second, we don't see our first three points directly here in our passage, but I did want to hit on a few things that solitude is not to help us deal with maybe some misconceptions that might be confusing or getting in the way of using this practice. So the first thing about solitude this morning that we see on the negative side of things is that it's not works or penance. Now, I prayed a bit of Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, just a minute ago there, but it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As we make our way through this series, it's possible to use it as a time of just collecting a list of things to check off that might earn God's favor or somehow maybe pay for our sins. Now, most evangelical Protestant Christians are not going to say that they are trying to pay for their sin. But we might sometimes think that maybe if we fast just a bit, if we spend some time in silence, if we read our Bibles, if we go to church, if we rest on the Sabbath, maybe, just maybe, God will be a little more open to hearing from us. We'll maybe be liking us a little bit more when we come to him than he did when we were sinning, right? Like maybe he's been planning your punishment but he sees you go off to the wilderness in silence and maybe he lessens the harshness of what he's about to hand down. Maybe. The good news is, and to borrow a phrase from my son, that's not how that works. It's not just about the things that we do, right? Even in the Old Testament, when sacrifices were required, the thrust behind the command was never simply the act of sacrifice. You might remember Cain and Abel bringing their sacrifices to the Lord. Cain brought crops, Abel brought an offering from his flock. God accepted Abel's and despised Cain's. Does God hate vegetables? No. God does have specific requirements. He gave clear direction to his people about the content and the means of the sacrifices, and they were very important, but it was also about the heart of the giver. Psalm 51 it says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Like we can't atone for our sin. 
Only Jesus can. And he has. And that's an amazing thing. That's what we celebrate each week. When we come here, we don't need to earn his forgiveness. We can't. We don't need to punish ourselves to pay for what we've done. It's been taken care of. And that's the good news we need to live in every single day. Silence and solitude. And the other disciplines that we're talking about through this series, they're not means of earning God's favor or paying for sin. They're not. Second, solitude is not the end, but a means. Jesus' emphasis on silence and solitude were never meant to point us to removing ourselves completely from the world. For a season, sure. For a lengthy season, maybe. Forever, no. In the fourth century, unhappy with the way that the church and the world were becoming more and more compatible with each other, some Christians headed to the wilderness to pursue holiness and grow closer to God in silence and solitude. In their minds, being permanently apart from the world was where Jesus was calling them. But in Jesus' own high priestly prayer, in his words, he asks God not to remove his followers from the world, but that God would keep them from the evil one while they were living in the world, living as he calls us to, reading at the end of verse 21 in John 17, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look, Jesus wants us to be holy, but he wants us to be holy in the world. As we're about to see, times of solitude and silence will strengthen us and prepare us, give us opportunity to draw closer to him, but it's so that we can go back into the world and live out the gospel for others to see. We were created for relationship with others, right? For community. In Genesis 2, right after creating Adam, a single person in solitude, God said, it's not good for this man to be alone. I mean, maybe for a little while we can be alone for a season, but not forever. We're not called to be lone wolves. We're the church, right? And the church isn't a building, it's people. It's not a person. It's about a person, but it's not made up of a person. Silence and solitude are not an alternative to being part of the local church. That's so important. Some people use the practice of silence and solitude as an excuse to avoid being around others. Whether it's because the feeling that they get maybe when they're out in the mountains, I mean, they're, they're beautiful, really. Or if it's because they don't want to be around other people, maybe they're grouchy. Or maybe others make them feel guilty and judged. Or maybe they started out doing something worthwhile, like just taking a break from interactions with others so they could hear more clearly from God, but then it became habit. It became preference. And now they fly solo. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. But the reverse is also true. Let him who is not in community beware being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. We need solitude so that we can be who we need to be in community with others. It's always coming back. But we also need community to be around each other with others to make sure that we're exercising our solitude in healthy ways. Solitude is not the goal, but it is vital in helping us get there. Thirdly, and the, and the last negative on our list this morning, solitude is not simply rest. 
And this one's just a freebie. It's a practical pointer here. Towards the end of November, we'll be taking a look at rest and Sabbath and as an important discipline to follow Jesus in. It's something that we need to do. And the truth is that rest is actually very likely to happen in silence and solitude. It maybe should even be expected when you're doing so, but it's not its intended purpose. On the flip side, you may choose for rest's sake to go somewhere alone and be silent, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. These are two closely linked but independent disciplines. Because when Jesus went to the wilderness on his own before being tempted by Satan, it was not restful passive time. It wasn't just laying around. It was prep time, actively seeking his father and the strength that he knew could only come from him. And maybe this is a good time to mention that sometimes the practice of solitude isn't always linked to silence. Sometimes there's a lot of talking, a lot of praying out loud, singing, crying, screaming even. But it's away from the crowd, away from distraction. In almost all of the instances of Jesus spending time in solitude, it was for the purpose of prayer. Intensely active. Being silent and listening is active. If you're escaping to the wilderness to hear from God, you need to be listening for him. Be intentional. Silence and solitude are not meant solely for rest. Remember the definition that we gave at the beginning of this. Being alone is with the Lord. Sorry, pardon me. Solitude is being alone with the Lord in a quiet quest for God. A quest that's passive. No, it's not. I can't read my notes. It's active, not passive. Solitude is not just about rest. Okay, that's it for the things that solitude are not for now. We're going to jump into three things that solitude are. And the first is that solitude is the Jesus way. So back to our passage, Mark 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. See, Jesus was staying at Simon Peter's house. He had just healed Peter's mother-in-law. He had spent the evening healing people, casting out demons. Exhausting. Amazing work, but exhausting. And instead of resting, like I'm sure I would want to after a long day of work like that, punching out for a solid 8 to 10 hours, Jesus gets up early and takes off by himself. This was his MO, right? Like Luke 5, Luke 5, 16 says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Other translations that we read add the word often to that passage. He would often withdraw to lonely places and pray. It's what he did. And the Old Testament also has accounts of God meeting people in the wilderness, in solitude. And Jesus was not only a student of God's word, right? He was the embodiment of God's word, the word of God himself. So he would have been intimately familiar with the Old Testament examples of God's people meeting him in the wilderness. I mean, he was there. In Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in the wilderness in the burning bush. 1 Kings 19, Elijah meets God in the wilderness. And I love this account. Listen to this. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. In Elijah's experience, we see the importance of silence, of not being distracted. Because God's voice didn't come in any of the loud things. 
but in the sound of a low whisper. And our lives are so loud that we were likely to miss him in even the earthquake. We need silence, solitude, wilderness. God meets Abraham in the wilderness, right? He meets Hagar in the wilderness, David in the wilderness, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, Amos, Jonah, alone in the wilderness. God met them there. Some of them were seeking him. Others weren't. But Jesus knew that that desolate solitude of the wilderness is a place to meet with God in profound ways. So of course he's going to practice this in his own earthly ministry. And we have so many examples of him doing so. While writing this week, I started making a list of the passages where Jesus was either in or on his way to or returning from solitude. And then I came across this in Richard Foster's Celebration of the Disciplines. He had already made a list and his was better than mine and used way fewer words. So here's how he said it. He, Jesus, inaugurated his ministry by spending 40 days alone in the desert. Before he chose the 12, he spent the entire night alone in the desert hills. When he received the news of John the Baptist's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart. After the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went up to the hills by himself. Following a long night of work, in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place. That's our passage today. Following the healing of a leper, Jesus withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. With three disciples, he sought out the silence of a lonely mountain as the stage for the transfiguration. And as he prepared for his highest and most holy work, Jesus sought the solitude of the Garden of Gethsemane. I could go on, but perhaps this is sufficient to show that the seeking of solitary places was a regular practice for Jesus. So it should be for us. So really, like Foster says, Jesus did it, so we should too. And that should be enough, right? Shouldn't that be enough? I mean, if Jesus himself needs, if he needs the time alone with his Father, we really don't need any more sermon points to convince us. But we have more sermon points to convince us this morning. Don't worry. But just think about that for a second. Who do we think we are? I asked this question of myself this week. Notice I'm saying we. Like, what does it say about our confidence in ourselves when we think we can get by without actively acknowledging, right? Actively doing something about it, actively acknowledging our dependence on God and not practice these disciplines. Prayer, fasting, studying scripture, solitude. Jesus does it, but we don't think it's important enough for us to do. I know some of you in here are experts when it comes to the disciplines. You might be saying, I do these things, Andy. Stop shouting at me. But I think you, if that's you, you're in the minority here. And that's really a shame. Jesus knows the importance of and the benefits that come from these disciplines. So he calls us to do things his way. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's that idea of rest coming through these disciplines again, but it's not just a simple call to come and lay down. Jesus goes on. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or as Eugene put it so beautifully in his paraphrase and message, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And if you look closely at both of these, it's not simply rest that Jesus is calling us to. We often talk about finding rest in him. We look at Psalm 23. God has us lay down in green pastures beside still waters. You know, he rebukes Martha because she's busy with housework while Mary sits at Jesus' feet. Rest. Rest is important, yes. But while Jesus does direct us to those moments or days or seasons of rest, the call to follow Jesus, it's a kind of work. And I say kind of because it's not just about hard slogging all the time. But look what he says. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. What's a yoke? It's a thing, right? It it's, goes this way between two animals to kind of so they can pull a cart together or something like that or a plow. I'm a farmer. I know these things. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, you're working hard on your own. You're plowing too hard, pulling stuff you don't need to pull. Come here. Take my yoke upon you. And you know what's cool about that? Yokes are for two. Who's the other person in the yoke? Whose yoke is it? It's Jesus. He says, work with me. Do the things that I do. Practice the things that I practice. Walk the way that I walk. Learn these unforced rhythms of grace, and you will find rest for your soul. Work with me. Because working on your own, trying to keep your own kingdom in order, when you neglect time alone, that undistracted, or, yeah, that undistracted time, when you hear from Jesus and no one else, when you're trying so hard to be controlling everything, that's the stuff that Jesus talks about when he says, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden. That's us. He doesn't want that for us. He's calling us to something better. And you might be stuck right now trying to pull your own cart around, and it's just not working. On top of the stress of not being able to make things work, you're feeling further and further and further away from Jesus, like maybe he's not even there at all. Maybe you're not doing things the Jesus way. Maybe you're actually going about it all wrong. Maybe you're living the Jesus Sorry. Oh, my goodness. Maybe you're not living the Jesus way. It's kind of like being married to somebody officially, but never talking to them. You're in the same house, but you don't spend time with each other. And you start to wonder why you feel distant and disconnected. So if that's you, what about trying the Jesus way? The way he talks in Matthew 11, it sure sounds like a promise. Why not try him on it? But before you do and stake your entire Christian experience on whether or not fasting or solitude suddenly make your life just go all back together, remember he's not calling you to a quick fix. He's calling you to work, to learn. And in the work, in the learning, there will be rest and freedom. Maybe these disciplines really are a key to unlock the source of power and joy that comes from oneness with God. Why don't we do this? We see there that silence and solitude is the way that Jesus did it. It's what he calls us to. Second, and this is a quick note here, solitude is a support for other disciplines. Back in our passage, the end of verse 35 says, He went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He prayed, right? Are silence and solitude necessary for prayer? No. I mean, most of us would never pray if that were the case. Are they a help in prayer? Absolutely. Think about some of the other disciplines. Our first week of the series, Lee covered listening, reading God's word. Do you do that next to your roommate while they're watching Netflix? Or by yourself on the dock in silence? Fasting. We're told to not make that a show in front of people. Sabbath, 
rest in a busy place with lots of noise or in the wilderness, in the quiet. I guess part of that would depend on your personality or your stage of life. And I do recognize that some of these disciplines are difficult at certain points in life. And we'll get to that in a bit. But we can't ignore the fact that studying God's word, hearing from him, speaking to him, fasting and resting, they are all made easier and even more effective by the time that we spend away from the world, away from the noise, where he can have our full attention. So solitude is a great help for the other disciplines. And number six, it helps us refocus our priorities. Verse 36 says, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And I think we see three ways in this little section of our passage, well, two ways in the passage, one's another freebie, but three ways that solitude helps us refocus our priorities in these moments. The first is that it helps us escape the noise. Verse 36 says, everyone is looking for you. Jesus has just done some amazing things, right? He's healed Peter's mother-in-law, he's healed others, cast out demons, and everyone wants a piece of him. Does that sound familiar to you in your life? I mean, you probably haven't cast out demons and healed a bunch of people and then had people chasing you down, but you are experiencing pursuit right now. All of you, all of us, everyone is looking for us. Your friends, your spouse, your kids, your boss, your teacher, the Fido Chinese voice department, John Horgan, Andrew Wilkinson, TikTok, Netflix, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TELUS, Bell, Kickstarter, Snapchat, Amazon, who else? Me, right now, right? Slack, LinkedIn, if that's still a thing, the NFL, NBC, NR, or NBR, and the NDP are just some of the things on this one thing that we carry with us 24-7. What about our TVs at home or the ads on the bus and the SkyTrain, those pop songs that we listen to that inform our morality, the clothes that people are wearing around us, the cars that they drive? Peter even reminds us, look, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Everyone is looking for you. Now, Jesus, knowing this, runs to the wilderness. He sneaks away while everyone's asleep. We, on the other hand, say, look! Look up here! Look up here! I'm here! Come and get me! Whatever you want! I've got such a bad case of FOMO and something's got to scratch the itch, right? Who wants my attention? Here it is! Here it is! Take it, please! Please! It's so much noise in our life all the time and we're so ready to take it. Some of you listen to music while you read. Like, how crazy is that? There's input all the time. There's barely a waking second that we have where noise isn't crowding out the low whisper of God's voice. In his book, The Spirit of Disciplines, Dallas Willard said it this way, in solitude we find the psychic distance, the perspective from which we can see in the light of eternity the created things that trap, worry, and oppress us. We have got to escape the noise. We've got to put these things away. And I am the chief of sinners when it comes to this stuff, right? Hear this from me, knowing I'm not casting stones. We've got to escape the noise. Secondly, it forces us to confront the things that we're so desperate to avoid. This is the other freebie. I think it's one of the reasons that many of us are actually hesitant 
to work silence and solitude into our schedule. It's the fear of having to actually deal with that thing. The other night I was getting ready for bed and a a wave of dread washed over me. I was reminded of having to have a tough talk with somebody and it just made me feel sick. There's no way I was going to be able to fall asleep. I was just anxious. The brain wouldn't shut off. So instead of climbing into bed, I got I threw on my shoes and a jacket and I just started walking. I was walking and praying and I, I didn't do any of those things. I didn't. I did what any normal person would do. I grabbed my phone and I binged Netflix until I was tired enough to fall asleep. That's what we do. Silence and solitude, though, they don't give us the luxury of avoiding those feelings and thoughts. We have to meet them head on. Sometimes they're lies from the enemy that we need to fight with. Sometimes they're the Spirit of God pointing out things he wants to do in us and through us, shaping us into who he wants us to be. We won't and can't deal with those things in the noise, in the crowds. We need silence and solitude. And the last point in this little bit here, it gives us space for missional realignment. Verse 38, and he said to him, let's go down to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. One of the things we talk about at Crossridge, both here at Sundays and and in our staff meetings, is the idea of missional drift. I know Leah has preached on this a number of times. It's the idea that an organization can start with the plan and intention of doing one thing, but over time, for one reason or another, the organization is no longer the same as when it started. Harvard started in 1636 as a Christian university with the clear and stated mission to prepare ministers of upright character. That's what they were about. Now, Harvard University is not a seminary. They have a divinity school that's kind of separate from the university, and the divinity school is mostly just a place for people to study religion, all religions. That's not where their founders thought they were going. Now, hear me really quickly, though. I am not in any way about to suggest that Jesus is suffering missional drift. Okay, Far from it. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that with all the good things that were going on in Capernaum, that Jesus may have been tempted to stay where he was and continue healing people and casting out demons. And not out of a sinful desire to make himself great, but in the understanding that it was a good thing that he was bringing glory to God through it and showing compassion to those who needed healing and deliverance. It's good stuff. And it's entirely possible that he needed to get away from the needs and the wants of the people and get alone with his father and be reassured of his calling and his mission. And in this case, that was to leave there and to preach in other towns. Now, whether or not this was true of Jesus in that moment, it's certainly true of us. Right? We can be busy about the work of the gospel, putting our time and energy into really good things, but we might know that he's actually calling us to something else. Or maybe we've got our heads down, living our lives, just go, go, go. Taking time in silence and solitude can show us how far off the mark we've really become. So far from where we thought we were headed. But it's outside of the pressures of life and the needs of the masses, our own little masses and our own little kingdoms, Out there, God can meet us and point us to where it is he wants us to go. And we might not even be all that far off right now, to be honest, but stress and work and desires, just the general noise and busyness of life are starting to pull us off course, retreating 
to the wilderness can be a place where we can get perspective. We can regroup. We can be recommissioned and refocus on the one who has called us to take on his yoke so we can work alongside him in the direction that he is going. Silence and solitude are not works. They're not penance. They're not the end goal. They're not simply rest. They are the Jesus way. They are a support to the other disciplines, and they help us refocus our priorities. Six things, and now you are all experts on practicing solitude. You are welcome. But seriously, are you going to do this? I don't know if you want to answer out loud. You're welcome to. But are we going to do this? We're going through this series. Are we going to do this? Am I going to do this? Are we going to weave these disciplines into our lives? I asked you at the very beginning how the idea of silence and solitude makes you feel. Do you still feel the same way about it? I mean, I hope not. I've been talking for a very long time. But are we going to do this? And hear me out, very, this is very, very, very important. This is not just another thing that God wants you to do, another thing to add to the list, another thing that you're not good at, that you're going to struggle with. I'm not shaming you into trying harder to be a better Christian. This is not about shame. But this is about the gift that God has designed for us, a means of experiencing freedom, a means of being reminded who's in control and where our help hope, sustenance, and power come from. It's grace, plain and simple. So how do we start? I have tips. First, it's a really tough one. Find a time and place where you can be alone. This is important. Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Those of you who know me know that what I'm about to say does not come out of my mouth easily. I do not say this flippantly. And some of you will hate me for saying this, but there is something about the morning. Oh! Oh! It's awful, but it's biblical. I think it's biblical. It's all over the place. Psalm 5.3 says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And I watch. I mean, God wouldn't like my morning voice. And the only thing I want to prepare in the morning is breakfast, right? Coffee. But for real, is there a better time? Unless you have the day off, probably not. It's the only time that you really have control of. If you don't do it in the morning, the quiet time is going to be dictated by everything else you have to do in the day. Maybe bedtime. Maybe, but if I try to read a paragraph in bed, I'm unconscious before I get through the first sentence. Maybe break times during the day. Whatever time, you have to prioritize it, and it's got to be scheduled. And wherever and whenever, sorry, whenever it is, it's got to be alone. Ideally, you're out in the wilderness or far away enough from distraction, far enough that running back to put out fires and deal with things just really isn't an option. Can it be a place in your house? Well, do you live alone? Then yes, that can work. If not, do you have a space where you can be alone and not distracted? 
Maybe that'll work. You have to give it a shot and try it out. But if distractions keep in or creep in, it's going to be time to move on. Second, you've got to find a time and a place where you can be silent. And there's really two parts to this. You need to be silent yourself so you can hear. The space also needs to be silent or pretty close. Practically, this means only having things with you that aren't going to be vying for your attention, right? That only things making noise or giving you input are carefully curated. Take a pen, a Bible, a notepad. If at all possible, leave this at home. If you need to have a phone there for emergencies, maybe, I don't know. I generally read my Bible on my phone. It's always with me. It's great. But it also means that I can always be found while I'm reading my Bible. Texts, emails, uh, then there's YouTube and Facebook, whatever. Maintaining the discipline to not look at these things when I'm bored or sad or struggling with the silence, like you might be capable of that. Not so much here. And here's the deal. I also hate it when I can't get a hold of my wife. Immediately. I text. No, it's not responding. But the truth is it's actually okay to be out of touch for a bit. Maybe just don't leave for the day without telling anyone and then just go off and turn off the phone and then, you know, your husband and your kids are trying to figure out where the peanut butter is and they don't know. Be responsible, but be unavailable. I give you permission. Just make sure you ask permission of those who you need to ask permission. No, mine doesn't count for anything. If there isn't a time or a place, make one. That's our last, or just one more after this. I know that for some of you, it's nearly impossible to get away. You have kids. Some of you who are moms, you're, you're with people all the time. You've likely heard the story of Susanna Wesley, the mother of Charles and John Wesley, and 17 other children. She gave birth to 19 children. There's no time for anything when you have 19 kids. I'm guessing. I have no idea. But she wasn't willing to give those things up, so... I'm not sure how often she did it, but she would sit in her chair when it came time for silence and prayer, and she would pull her apron up over her head, and her kids knew, don't talk to mom. This is her time. That was her wilderness. Find a babysitter, take a day off, wake up in the middle of the night. And if there isn't time for you to spend even a few minutes alone with Jesus, there is a problem. It might be time for an entire life examination and reevaluation. Last tip here, and we'll close with this. Don't overdo it. Set yourself up for success. If you're like me, you want to swing for the fence with everything. You know, you've heard the last few sermons and you're like, okay, I've never fasted or been alone or read my Bible, so I have booked 40 days at Golden Ears to fast and pray and not talk to or hear from anyone. Right? It's not going to be good for you. These disciplines are just like any discipline. If you go all in without any training, practice, or build up, you're going to fizzle or burn out. Richard Foster made these great, simple suggestions. The first thing we can do is take advantage of those little solitudes that fill our day. Consider the solitudes of those early morning moments in bed before the family awakens. Think of the solitude of a morning cup of coffee before the beginning of the workday. There's solitude in the bumper-to-bumper traffic during the freeway rush hour. Find the new joy and meaning in the little walk from the subway to your apartment. Slip outside just before bed and taste the silent night. These tiny snatches of time are often lost to us. What a pity. They can and should be redeemed. They are times for inner quiet, for reorienting our lives like a compass needle. Start small, but start. We have to do this. I actually think our lives might depend on it. 
I'm saying before you guys, I'm in. Okay, I'm going to do this. Please, those of you who are around me, hold me accountable. Lee can make fun of me when I walk into the office. You obviously didn't get up early and pray today. I pray that you will join me in this process. Let's pray. God, I don't know what you want to do in our lives other than make us into the people that you want us to be. People who are deeply in love with you. And I pray this morning, God, that you would give us a deep conviction of your spirit to follow you in these disciplines, to be the people that you want us to be, the way that you want us to be, following your way. And God, give us the discipline to follow through and to do it. And we just pray this in your name. Amen.